Well, good morning, everybody. As you may be aware, you are sitting in a Christian church that is both good and important. As some of you may be aware, you're also sitting in an Anglican church. That is not so good and not so important, but it's still somewhat good and somewhat important. But the fact that this is an Anglican church is worth stopping to think about once in a while, as it will help us to work out what's important to us and why, and with respect to that, what we believe and what we do. So how is it that we became Anglican? Well, today is the first of a four-part series of talks uh, looking at that journey of becoming Anglican. And today, the story of the Bible in English. Well, the Anglican Church of Australia comes descended from the Church of England. And technically, we are still a part of the Church of England, or in communion with the Church of England, insofar as the Archbishop of Canterbury, this guy here, the Archbishop of Canterbury is my boss's boss's boss. And... um, Humanly speaking, humanly speaking, his boss is the Queen. Thank you, Queen Elizabeth II. So Queen Elizabeth II is my boss's 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 boss. The Church of England is a product of the Reformation. Uh, The Church of England is a Protestant, Reformed, or Bible-believing church. But the story of what was happening in England during those Reformation years is its own story. Um, A story that's actually very different to the story of the European Reformation that we looked at last year. Now, you may have heard about uh, King Henry VIII, known to his close friends as Harry. And you may have heard of his six wives. He split England from the Roman Catholic Church, which which is based in Rome and headed up by the Pope, because the Pope wouldn't allow him to do what he wanted to do which was to get a divorce from wife number one, that was Catherine of Aragon, in order to marry wife, well, who would become wife number two, Anne Boleyn. Well, more of that next week. But what was England like in those days? What was the faith and practice of English people like around the time that Harry was born in 1491? Well, the England that Harry was born in had been a Christian country for many, many centuries. Uh, In Jesus' day, southeastern England was already within the Roman Empire, having been defeated by Julius Caesar in 55 BC, who may have said, weenie, weedy, weeky. Weenie, weedy, weeky, which means... That's right. Actually, he's recorded as saying that later, but he could have said it when he got to England. Who knows? And there were probably Christians in England by the close of the first century AD. And it seems that there was an organized indigenous church in England by the year 300 AD. You see, large numbers of British Christians were killed in AD 304 as part of one of the organized Roman persecutions of Christians. Um, You may have heard of an Englishman named Patrick who went to Ireland. The Irish love him, even though he's English. 
And the Englishman named Patrick, he went to Ireland and he converted vast numbers of Irishmen, baptizing them. And then from then, the Irish began to send missionaries to lots of other countries, including Scotland. And then in the early 600s, the Bishop of Rome, Pope Gregory, sent a man named Augustine. Not the famous Augustine, another Augustine. Um, Gregory sent Augustine to lead a mission trip to the seven kingdoms of the Anglo-Saxons. The kingdoms of Kent, Essex, Sussex, East Anglia, um, Wessex, Northumbria and Mercia. And um, uh, Augustine arriving in Kent, he discovered that in Kent the queen was already a Christian. Her husband, King Ethelbert, was himself eventually converted And very quickly thereafter, large numbers of people came to faith in Christ. Churches were established, each city having its own bishop, and Augustine became the first head of the church of the Anglo-Saxons, the first Archbishop of Canterbury, because Canterbury was the capital city of the kingdom of Kent. Now, there were minor differences in in tradition and practice, not, not any differences in belief, but there were minor differences in tradition and practice between the indigenous British church that was already there and the Roman church that Augustine represented. But they had a synod in Whitby in uh, 663 AD, and the British church decided to go the Roman way, creating thereafter a united Christendom all across Western Europe. So then, By the time that Harry was born in 1491, some 800 years later, the British Isles had been part of Christendom for a very long time. But what was the nature of that nearly universal European church? Well, actually, it had changed a very great deal through the medieval or Middle Ages. Um, in, In Harry's day... All the kings of Europe came under the power of the emperor. And the person who decided who the emperor was, was the pope. So the pope was, in addition to being the head of the church, the pope was politically the most powerful man on earth. The church itself was enormously wealthy and powerful, and astonishingly corrupt and wicked. Also, most of us would hardly recognize anything with respect to their systems of belief. The the, the late medieval Roman Catholic Church taught, it did teach that people were saved by grace, but what it meant by those words is something quite different from what we mean by those words when we say that you're saved by grace. You see, grace to them was kind of like a commodity, a thing, and you had to earn enough of it to get into heaven. This is the thinking. People are born sinful with original sin. Okay, infant baptism wipes wipes the slate clean, but thereafter sin puts people in deficit. If you earn enough grace points, that gets you into heaven. Most people couldn't hope to do this. So most people understood that After they died, they were on their way to a place called purgatory. Now, purgatory, by the way, it was considered to be some kind of halfway house between life on earth and life in heaven. A place of suffering and torment. A place of further purification of the soul. 
Most people, it was thought, went to purgatory to suffer for sins that had been confessed but had not yet been adequately suffered for. So they went there on their way to heaven. And most people imagined that their dead relatives were actually in purgatory. So how could you earn grace points? Well, you earned grace points by going to Mass, which is what they called Holy Communion. Um, You could go to Mass and earn grace points that way, or you could go on pilgrimages to visit holy sites, or you could earn grace points by giving money to the church. The church, it was understood, was kind of like God's bank. Grace could be transferred between accounts because some people had a merit of grace, which is very handy. And this transfer of grace, electronic grace transfer, if you like, was mediated through the church, and in particular through the Pope, who, as St. Peter's successor as Bishop of Rome, held the keys of heaven. So you could put grace directly into your own account by buying something called an indulgence. We looked at that a little bit last year. When you prayed, you prayed to Mary or to some other hero of the faith. And as recognized by the popes. And these heroes were called saints. These people were nice people in heaven who, on the basis of exemplary lives, had a huge bank balance of surplus merit or grace. And they could put in a good word with you, with God. So you didn't pray to Jesus, you didn't pray to the Father, you prayed to saints or Mary. Now, to, to the late medieval Roman Catholic Church, the Mass which is what they called Holy Communion, the Mass was central to everything. This was the thing that generated new grace. Just like supercomputers today in China are doing something, I've got no idea what, but I know that they're doing something that generates more Bitcoin. So in the same way, the Mass in a late medieval Roman Catholic Church generated new grace. I don't know how, but it did. Grace that could be distributed around the church. The Mass itself was intricate and detailed in all of its sounds and smells and traditions, but there were two ideas that were fundamental. Two ideas. Firstly, Roman Catholics believed then, and in fact continue to believe today, that during the Mass, the bread and wine of Holy Communion became in reality the real body and the real blood of Jesus Christ. That idea is called transubstantiation. In fairness to the Roman Catholics, this idea is probably very, very ancient, going back to the, to the early church. However, this idea, which is ultimately not biblical, This idea carries with it the idea that during Holy Communion, it is right and proper to literally worship the bread and wine because that's Jesus right there. And in actual fact, to this day, in Anglican churches, in Perth, it's traditional for the priest, that's me, to eat up all of the bread and the wine at the end of Holy Communion, that's traditional even today, so that Romanish people don't sneak in, steal it, in order to worship it. 
Uh, that's why you'll see in some Anglican churches the, the priests consume all of the bread and all of the wine. I don't do that. I can't do that. Uh, but that's why it's still done today in some Anglican churches, even here in Perth. The second thing that Roman Catholics believed then and continue to believe today is that the Mass is a symbolic re-crucification of Jesus. To quote a modern Catholic author, quote, The Mass is the renewal and perpetuation of the sacrifice of the cross in the sense that it offers Jesus anew to God, unquote. That's why... Um, uh, in Roman Catholic churches, the language of this kind of stuff, it's, it's all sacrificial. The, the communion table is called an altar. What is an altar? Well, an altar is a pile of rocks on which you kill an animal. What is a priest? A priest is someone who kills an animal on your behalf in order to appease the gods. So that's why the language of, of Holy Communion is so sacrificial in a Roman Catholic church. Well, this is why in the late medieval Roman Catholic Church and, and practice, the Mass was the center of everything. It was the center of worship. It was the focus of the church because it was the place where you met Jesus and the place where you both made and received grace. So it was incredibly important then. But there were, of course, people around who realized that all of these thoughts and even the thinking behind these thoughts had almost no resemblance whatsoever to what the New Testament was talking about. Now, a third thing about the Mass, and the significance of this will emerge, a third thing was that the entire service was conducted in Latin. Now, throughout the Middle Ages and into the early Renaissance, um, the only Bible that people had access to, if indeed you did have access to a Bible, the only Bible you had access to was a Latin translation called the Vulgate uh, from the Latin uh, Versio Vulgata or Versio Vulgata. Um, in other words, the commonly used version. And I guess they probably referred to it as the VV version. And given that in Latin you pronounce V's as W's, I guess they referred to it as the Wee Wee version. And that's a joke for all the under fives and theologians in the audience. Well, the Vulgate was the work of a man named Jerome uh, in and around 380 AD. And he translated uh, um, uh, this, um, the Vulgate, and it was the translation the church used universally for the next 1,100 years. And for all of those years... Latin had served Europe really well as an international language, the lingua franca, the one common language across Europe that everybody spoke. It was the language of trade and business. It was the language of academia. It was the language of diplomacy. And it was, of course, the language of the church. The problem was, was that uneducated people didn't understand it. And actually, most people were uneducated. Peasants. Most peasants couldn't read. They were illiterate. Um, it's actually pretty hard for us to understand what the world would have been like back then because so many of the ideas that we take for granted just hadn't come into existence yet. 
Um, and it's an easy thing to say that knowledge is power. But the thing about education is that it is so much more than giving people just information. Education is teaching people how to process information so as to think and how to think for yourself. Knowledge is not power if knowledge is simply defined as information. But knowledge is power if it's defined as information combined with understanding as to how to come to correct conclusions on the basis of your observations so as to generate insights that lead you to be able to make good decisions. Then that's power. That's wisdom. That's a lot of power. And by the way, just in case you hadn't noticed, people like power. And the story of the English Reformation is a story about power and it's a story about the transfer of power. I remember uh, reading somewhere, uh, somebody said, um, quote, magic was the mobile phone of the medieval era, unquote. It was how people got things done. Um, in a world where logical and rational connections between things were hidden and deeply mysterious, associations were easily made between all kinds of things. Superstitions were enormously powerful because of the fact that superstitious associations were as good a way of explaining stuff as anything. In, in the pre-modern world, spiritual and magical explanations had greater authority than what we would call today scientific explanations. So then, if um, you wanted a boy or a girl to fall in love with you, what you did was you cast a spell on them. I mean, obviously. And for that, you're going to need a lock of hair or a toenail. I mean, obviously. And magic was how you got things done. In medieval times, uh, generally only the clergy, the priests, bishops, nuns, monks, and the aristocracy had any education. And even then, it was often very, very small amount of education. The Bible wasn't taught in churches. It was possibly read, but it wasn't really taught. And when it was taught, they used pictures. Because after all, what was the point? According to the thinking, I mean, putting the Bible in the hands of ordinary believers would have been like giving an iPad to a bandicoot. It would have been like giving an Apple Watch to me. But in late medieval times, as Europe grew more and more prosperous and city-centered, literacy and education became more and more common. And if you were here last year and you remember about Martin Luther, you remember that although he was of peasant stock, he had a university education. He was qualified as a lawyer, and later on uh, he earned his PhD. So education's expanding at this point in, in history. And that's because of an um, astonishing invention, uh, 1439, the invention of the printing press, the Gutenberg press, 54 years before Harry is born. And it's an invention that went viral. Suddenly, huge numbers of people, the entire middle class, could afford books, and everyone could afford a pamphlet. Now, pamphlets, by the way, they were the social media of their age. Facebook and YouTube and Twitter all rolled into one. If there was somebody handing out pieces of paper, then you grabbed one. It was a pamphlet. You didn't ignore that. 
Pamphlets was how you knew stuff. And pamphlets was how you knew new stuff. And pamphlets was how you knew the new stuff that those in power didn't want you to know. Pamphlets were exciting. Junk mail, who'd have thought? <laughs> Unsurprisingly then, the late medieval period saw a movement of people who all felt, hey, we need to put the Bible into the hands of ordinary believers. And we need to do that in the vernacular, in the ordinary language of ordinary believers. That's what we need to do. And one such person was John Wycliffe in England, who translated the Vulgate into Middle English in 1382. And his timing, as it would turn out, was not good. Well, uh, John Wycliffe was born in the 1320s, and he died in 1384, more than a century before Harry was born. He was a theologian and a priest, and he worked as a seminary professor at the University of Oxford. As a university professor, he vociferously attacked the self-indulgent and privileged lifestyles of the clergy, and, and he attacked many of the church doctrines. In 1382, he published a translation of the Bible from the Vulgate, from, from Latin, into the English of his day, which we now call Middle English. And he rapidly gained a strong following, and his followers were called Lollards. Now, Lollard was a word technically that meant somebody who couldn't read Latin. But it was a term of derision. Oh, you Lollard! You thicky, can't even read Latin. Well, John Wycliffe and the Lollards had four main beliefs. They opposed pilgrimages. They opposed praying to and worshipping the saints. They denied the doctrine of transubstantiation. And they demanded that uh, an English language translation of the Bible be made widely available. And John Wycliffe was clear, just as Martin Luther would be clear a century and a half later, John Wycliffe was clear that the Bible, not the Pope, was the final authority on all matters of faith and doctrine. Well, initially, um, the University of Oxford, as well as a small handful of nobility, they sheltered Wycliffe and the Lollards on the grounds of academic freedom. But as I said, the timing of Wycliffe's Bible was not good. You see, in 1381, the year before, there was a peasants' revolt, a big peasants' revolt right across England, a major uprising of peasants against their feudal overlords across large swathes of England. And although John Wycliffe and the other Lollards opposed uh, the revolt, the association between Lollardy and this new social unrest seemed very clear in the minds of the established powers. And whatever protection the Lollards enjoyed quickly evaporated. And you, if you understand the times, it's not difficult to see the connection. In the medieval world and in the church of that time, the idea of people thinking for themselves was anathema. You believed what you were told to believe. And to oppose the thinking of the church, to contradict the Pope, was unthinkable. It would be literally the end of the world as we knew it. You see, if people held the Pope to account, then they'd hold kings to account. And what would that end in? It would end in violence and bloodshed and disorder and chaos. And everybody knew 
where violence and bloodshed and chaos and disorder comes from, that's the work of Satan. That's what Satan wants. What God wants is peace and order and hierarchy and submission and obedience. In that was safety. So all this lolardy stuff, this must be from the devil. Well, lolardy persisted, but it was highly illegal. And the lollards were vigorously persecuted and pursued. By the early 1400s, Lollardy was an official heresy, and in 1410, the first of many Lollards were burnt at the stake. Um, and I understand that was not a good way of going. Uh, from that time on, the punishment, and this would persist for a couple of centuries, for that time on, the punishment for being found in possession of any portion of Scripture in English was death. So for a long, if you're in possession... Of any portion of the Holy Scriptures in English, you're doing something that would have got you the death penalty for a couple of centuries. Well, we jump forward in time by 125 years to the year 1535. Harry has been king for 26 years. In the previous year, 1534, Martin Luther in Germany has just published the Bible in ordinary German. Not from the Vulgate, but rather from the original Greek and Hebrew Testaments. And the year after, in 1535, an Englishman named William Tyndale, also working in Germany, in, in exile for fear of his life, he published an English Bible, likewise from the Greek and Hebrew originals. And for his trouble, William Tyndale was convicted of heresy and strangled to death the next year uh, in 1536. Okay, very quickly, jumping forward again in time. After Henry came, after Henry VIII came King VI, after whom came? Not quite. And Lady Jane Grey, for how long? Nine days, I knew you'd know. <laughs> then Queen Mary. Uh, then uh, Queen Elizabeth I for a long time, from 1558 all the way to 1603. More about all of those guys next week. But it would take a new century and a new king, King James I of England and Ireland, King James VI of Scotland, King James to allow an official English Bible. The authorized version as they knew it, as we know it today, the King James Version, which relied heavily on Tyndale's Bible. It was first published in 1611, the same year that Shakespeare published his 33rd play, The Tempest. So, we've gone this morning from 55 BC up to 1611 AD. That's 1,666 years of British history. You may be asking yourself, what's the point? Very good question. Uh, actually, there are many good points that could be made. I'm going to just try to just make one point. Um, last year when I spoke on Martin Luther, I spoke about the spiritual importance of reading our Bibles and praying every day. Uh, in fact, the importance of that cannot be overstated. Reading our Bibles and praying every day keeps us connected to God through Jesus Christ, his son. And staying close to God is simply the most important thing in life. But rather than rehearsing that message that I gave last year, I'd like to say something slightly different today about the importance of reading the Bible and praying every day. 
Now, that thing is this. Um, all things considered, it is a miracle of God that we're legally allowed to read the Bible privately and publicly, together or by ourselves, in our own language. It's a miracle because it enables people to learn something that leaders and governors have often gone out of their way to prevent people from being able to do. And that thing is the subtle art of thinking for yourself. Now, you might think that fish oil is good for your brain, and actually it is. But I am here today to tell you that the Bible is the best imaginable food for your brain. It will teach you to think, not just to know, but to think critically, to balance arguments and ideas and to make right judgments for yourself as you're walking hand in hand with Christ. This is because as we devote ourselves to hear, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest the Holy Scriptures, to quote uh, an English bishop named Thomas Cranmer, as we do this, we grapple with a text that is designed by God to exercise our minds. It is very easy to understand. And it is very hard to understand. It means what it says. But you know, actually, it doesn't mean what it says. It means what it means. It is not a rule book to be memorized and slavishly followed. Rather, it is a contextual document that, were writ that was written for other people. And it can only be meaningfully applied as we think about it contextually, contextually balancing what's said in this place with what's said in that place. And it and only makes sense, actually, when we're reading... Uh, and on speaking terms with its author. Uh, unless we're reading it with its author, we'll never understand it. It is nonsense unless it is read with Jesus. It is dangerous unless we, were, unless we are under it rather than over it, allowing it as God's living word to judge us rather than us judging it. Now, you might think that going for a run every day is important, but I'm here to tell you today that that's not important at all compared with the importance of reading your Bible every day and praying. Then and only then are we involved in a process that will keep on, keep on um, uh, us thinking right thoughts about ourselves, right thoughts about God, right thoughts about each other, right thoughts about the world in which we live. To paraphrase Paul, reading the Bible and praying every day will make us wise. It will make us wise in ways that will save us. It will make us wise for every situation every day. I mean, goodness gracious me, why would you ignore that? Reading the Bible and praying every day. Please do it and the Lord be with you.